Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we'll discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Lori Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. The Ontario government and education workers may have avoided a strike with a tentative deal, but will the union members ratify the agreement? And we cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini, Weekly Washington Report. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're going to begin the program today with uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's uh, not-so-excellent adventure. He's been on the road, of course, for about the last week and a half with a variety of different uh, elements, uh, including the G20, the Francophonie Conference. Uh, as a matter of fact, at that conference, uh, he uh, was asked about the allegations uh, that uh, surfaced about a week or so ago uh, about the Chinese government interfering in the last uh, federal election here in this country. And the Prime Minister admitted to the media that he has never received an intelligence briefing about allegations about the Chinese government trying to influence that 2019 election. Of course, there was a global news report earlier this month that cited what they called an anonymous source that claimed up to 11 candidates in that election received funding from the Chinese government. The report says Trudeau was briefed on the matter in January, but says, no, no, that never happened. Here's the PM. I have asked my officials to examine these media reports and give all possible answers, everything they can, to the parliamentary committee that's looking into this. But let me be clear, I do not have any information, nor have I been briefed, on any federal candidates receiving any money from China. Uh, well, let's begin there, and we'll uh, dovetail off into a couple of the other issues that the Prime Minister is facing. And to do that, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, a pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Anytime, Bill. Thanks for having me. Okay, listen, so uh, the Prime Minister's at the G20 conference, pretty much gets dressed down in public by the Chinese president for uh, apparently leaking information that uh, they didn't like leaked. Uh, then, of course, the Francophony conference, where there's a, a lot of pressure on the Canadian government right now to be a major player mm -hmm. in, uh, well, I guess it's going to be called a peacekeeping mission in Haiti. Not a good week. How would you score the Prime Minister's uh, actions and reactions to what's going on in the world and Canada's role in that? Interesting. I, I think that the word you used is right. It's There is a sense that he appears to be reacting, which is, I think, not what he wanted. He wanted to go out with a stronger foot forward. And this was, I think, what the government wanted to do with, with this international trip for the prime minister was to be more assertive about Canada's role in the world. And it seems to me that uh, Minister Jolie, for example, has been more outspoken about the need to distance ourselves from China and diverse, to diversify our relationships in the Indo-Pacific. And also Minister Freeland has been talking about the need to kind of chart a new course for international relations and for Canada to be a leader in that. And so there's all that backdrop, but then when he he's on the move, when he's traveling around, there are things that he seems to just be reacting to. And so it doesn't seem like he's got that, he's in that sort of driver's seat position. And so, yeah, like he ends it in the Francophonie talking about how, you know, Canada is, is maybe willing to lead a, a military intervention, but we have to know that everybody in Haiti is on board. And so, I mean, that's, that that's reasonable, I think, but it's also a bit not, it's not the kind of strong, um, you know, cl clarity in that you want in a leadership that when and I don't mean that in a political way. I mean, it's not the type of thing. It's not the type of statement that everybody can say. Okay, now I understand what he means. Now I understand what we're going to do. It just seems like he's reacting. Well, especially in the Haiti situation. I mean, as you said, the, the assertion here means 
he seems to indicate that as long as everybody's on the same page, nobody's been on the same page in Haiti for the last 40 years. And that's since Papa mm-hmm. Dr. Valley. And that was for all the wrong reasons. So, I mean, you know, what, what are they really saying here? Well, that's the thing is, and I think that's, that's why a, a comment like that can, can be seen as, okay, yes, we're, we're putting reasonable parameters around an investment that is going to be, you know, a considerable one for Canada. And we want to set a tone that we are putting some conditions upon our leadership in that way. But is it, you know, is this essentially an impossible threshold that he's setting? And so therefore this is a roundabout way of saying that Canada's not doing this. And instead of just saying, we're not doing it, he's going to do it like this, which is, is again, like it, it prevents that kind of clear statement of where Canada is on this. Well, and I, I can see his trepidation in this matter because, mm. you know, we're told uh, from the reporting at the conference that uh, the United States is is pressuring, I guess, diplomatically Canada to take a lead role in this, uh, which I assume it means the United States doesn't want to because they realize it's a quagmire uh, and, and there's really no easy way to, to get res- any res- resolution of what's going on in Haiti right now. Uh, and they don't want to wear that, I suppose. But th- at the same token, I, I can understand that the prime minister uh, saying, look, at, let's let's make sure that everybody's got their ducks in a row here. And that includes the other people uh, that may be involved in some sort of peacekeeping. Exactly. And so I think, you know, on on that basis, Canada is providing more funds. So he indicated yesterday that we are going to be providing, I think, eight million for humanitarian aid and then roughly another eight and a half million, I think, for um, anti-corruption measures and to uh, for justice in terms of gender-based violence. And so I think the, the prime minister is trying to assert, you know, that Canada is involved. Canada is trying to stabilize the situation in Haiti by uh, trying to counter the effects of gangs who are destabilizing things. But um, yeah, I think that it's going to be probably a while before we figure out whether whether Canada's involvement will look any different. And I think you're right about the U.S. They're encouraging Canada to take that leadership role because it is going to be a very difficult, like, you know, that's an understatement of the year, but a really, really difficult situation once you're there on the ground to be able to resolve. And so, it, and, and then when you look more broadly at everything else that's happening in the world right now, it's not exactly a stable place. And so it's scary for any government to think about taking a leadership role like this. Let's circle back a little bit to the, the Chinese assertions. Uh, uh, that was a global news report, that I guess, from about a week and a half or so ago uh, that suggested that uh, they, he was briefed about information like this. Now, he's denied that, and apparently there is no record of any briefing about any of this stuff right now, but there is going to be, I, I suppose, some sort of an inquiry. Uh, mm-hmm. you got to wonder where an anonymous source like this, uh, just what was the intention and, and what was the stated goal here, which, which really kind of tried to dump this on the prime minister's lap. And he said, I had nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's at this point, it looks like it's the procedure and house affairs committee, which is a standing committee in parliament is, is going to be taking a bigger investigation into the possibility of Chinese interference in the 2019 election. And I've read lots of news reports about, you know, the possibility of interference in certain writings and, you know, through perhaps different social media blogs and things like that. And the conservatives are are saying that um, it's possible that conservative candidates were targeted because of what was at the time, Aaron O'Toole's, in, and then later on, well, I guess it would have been later Aaron O'Toole's, but different ways in which the conservatives have taken a tougher stance on China. And so this being a sort of retaliatory targeting targeted thing. And I think the, tr- the prime minister is trying to 
create some space between whether or not he was specifically briefed on on the possibility that certain candidates received financing. And so it seems like as opposed to a general briefing about the possibility of interference. And so I think the government is maybe trying to keep a gray area there and the opposition wants to, you know, continue to hammer away to figure out what exactly happened. And they want to, you know, get use that committee as a space to do that. And the government is saying this is not the right space. It should be NSI COP. So there's all this back and forth. But I mean, the the broader issue of the possibility of interference in elections and the fact that there's been, you know, some discussion of intelligence that there was there was some interference, even though overall we don't have reasons to question the integrity of the administration of elections is an extremely serious issue that we we need to be worried about. And the Canada and the elections commissioner, um, the the um, chief electoral officer of, of Elections Canada, they have both sounded alarms about how this is a serious, serious issue. And they they don't necessarily have the tools to investigate and deal with it. Uh, because it's really, as you mentioned, two separate issues. You know, uh, was there a Chinese involvement? And and it, this, I guess, goes back to the old conspiracy thing that just seems to be so popular these days. Who knew what, and when did they know it? And mm-hmm. uh, the prime minister is basically saying, "Don't look at me. I did not get the briefing." And and this yeah. tradition, uh, technically, there there are there are records of these sorts of things. Uh, maybe not specifics, but I mean, you know, if if he was briefed by security agencies, you would have figured that somebody knows something instead of just a quote unquote anonymous source. Laurie, I want to, can you hang on for a couple of minutes? Sure. I want to do a quick break, but I want to talk about some of the uh, uh, the, the challenges facing the Prime Minister now that he's back here on, on Canadian soil, too. And we'll do that right after a short break. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, as the month of November winds down, so also does the uh, Emergencies Act inquiry that's going on in Ottawa. And uh, it's uh, going to be a pretty big week. Uh, the Prime Minister is one of uh, a number of of high-profile politicians and leaders who's going to be testifying at this. Uh, Global's Tina Trujanti has some details. Over the last month, the Public Order Emergency Commission has heard from over 60 witnesses, ranging from people living near the protests and constant noise to different levels of law enforcement, including Ottawa's former police chief, to protest organizers themselves. And this week, top intelligence officials will take the stand, including the head of CSIS. Also taking the stand this week, Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair. He'll be the first of seven ministers to appear, and it will all wrap up on Friday with a much-anticipated testimony of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The inquiry has previously heard CSIS determined the protests were not a threat to national security, according to the legal definition that the agency uses to identify such threats. A final report will be submitted to the federal government by the first week of February, and that will include some recommendations. From there, the report will be tabled in both the House of Commons and Senate by the 20th of February. Tina Trajani, Global News. Uh, back with uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. Let, let's turn inward here and look at what's going to be happening at this inquiry. Uh, it, it's been a mishmash of information, Laurie. Uh, yeah, d- clearly, there was a, a, a dysfunctional Ottawa Police Service that was involved in this. Uh, you have different uh, intelligence agencies uh, that are saying, well, we didn't know, we didn't tell these guys. There's a, a lot to unpack here, but uh, the fact that the Prime Minister and, uh, and others are going to be testifying this week uh, to try to wrap this whole thing up. I, I, have we lost the, the 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 intent here, which was really to say, was this necessary? Which it, it just seems there are so many different side roads that we've gone down over the last couple of weeks during this testimony. I think you're right. And I think there's there are going to be always in something like this, people are going to want to get their own version of things on the record. There's lots of, of lots went down, obviously, in the weeks that the convoy had occupied Ottawa and that these events had taken place in other other places in the country. 
there's going to be people who we've heard from in the in the commission testimony who who want to explain, you know, this is what what I saw, this is what I did, and they want to kind of get that out there. And you know, for a lot of these people, like it's a lot to take in and over, you know, five six weeks of testimony, and you're not going to remember all of it. And uh, you know, it's it's hard, I think, to draw a kind of consistent narrative where you can say, okay, like this is a story that explains everything that happened. I think we'll hear more of that type of thing this week because these are the politicians who were involved in the decision. A lot of the testimony we've heard so far has been, this is what was happening on the ground in Ottawa, for example. And this was, you know, the communication between the police and the, and the mayor's office and the police board. And you're hearing different versions of events and different timelines and things. And it's like, whoa, like, I don't even know how much of this do we have to remember. But now I think you're going to hear the political justification, which even if it's it's going to be nowhere near as detailed, nowhere near as, you know, kind of on the ground moment to moment sort of thing, but it's going to be an overall picture of this is what we saw and this is why we did what we did. Well, because some of the past testimony, especially when it comes to some of the security and intelligence forces, were saying, no, we did not ask the prime minister to do this, but hey, it sure helped. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of splitting hairs. I mean, what, what's the message there? That's it, right? Because what the the commission is for is to, ter- to determine whether that legal threshold was met. And so really, if you go back to those comments and say, well, it w- we didn't need it, but it was nice, you know, or we didn't need it, but it was helpful. I, I think a strict interpretation of that would be, okay, but it wasn't necessary. So then maybe they ought not to have done it because it's the the legal threshold is not would this be helpful is is it necessary because everything else every other option had been expired and so it seems like the way testimony is lined up up until this point we can see some gray area there we can see a lot of people saying oh goodness like we wouldn't have been able to function without this and then others saying no you know it helped but we could have done it another way and so where does that leave the justice and what will the report say? So it strikes me that there could be some gray area, some murkiness, some some interpretation. And I suspect all in all, you know, a big list of recommendations for how we could avoid this in the future. But of course, even if the justice is, is, to, deter, is to determine that the legal threshold wasn't met, the consequences for that are political rather than legal or constitutional. Yeah, we have, I mean, you know, there's nobody going to get their wrist slapped or something on this. I mean, yeah. it's going to be fascinating to see. Uh, I just want to circle back to the Chinese situation for one second, because uh, one of the issues that the, the prime minister is going to have to deal with now that he's back with his cabinet, of course, is uh, this much talked about uh, Indo-Pacific strategy that uh, Minister Jolie actually uh, unveiled. Christian Freeland has been dabbled in this in the last little while, too, uh, suggesting that we have to change our attitude towards China when it comes to trade. Uh, and, and they're going to have to nail this thing down. I mean, I know they're getting pressure from the Americans right now to say, you know, let's let's see the final draft of this. Let's get moving on this. Australia has been uh, pretty adamant about this. The Americans have been pretty adamant about this. Uh, does what happened to uh, to the prime minister at the G20 conference uh, impact that at all? Or is it is it about time for the prime minister to say, OK, we're going to play hardball with these guys, too? Well, I mean, I think that, as you say, Canada has to kind of put it out there, put their cards on the table and determine what we're going to be doing. We've been talking about this for so long and there's been so much, you know, attention and analysis to how the rest of the world is going to respond to the growth of China. And when Christian Freeland made that speech about how we should change our approach to trade so that we are aligning our our approach to trade with the values of that we have that we share with other countries and we should be 
trading with countries who, whose values are common with ours, because that will make for more stable supply chains and we wouldn't see the kinds of disruptions perhaps that we're seeing now. And I think that's a very compelling argument as a concept, but how are you going to decide which countries share our values and which don't? particularly if there's a country that disagrees, if you're trying to put them on the, you know, the side of the bad kind of thing, right? Like what, and where are you going to put China? And what sorts of massive disruptions to our supply chain and our way of life are people willing to tolerate if we take a really diff different kind of approach with China? And so I think that there's a, there's nothing but uncertainty about that, to be honest. And at this point, I think that, as you say, the government has to indicate how their shifting approach to global relations is going to affect things on the ground here in Canada. How will it affect people, their jobs, their money, uh, Canadian sectors? You know, what's actually going to happen on the ground if we make this change? Well, uh, lots going on this week, of course, in the nation's capital. Always great to have your perspective on this. Laurie, thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Bill. Take care. You too. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University uh, with an eye on what's going on in the federal scene. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the negotiations continued right through the weekend for the uh, education support workers and, of course, the Ontario government. And uh, they had a 5 p.m. deadline yesterday afternoon. And they said, if you don't get a deal, then we're going out on strike. And amazingly, in the 11th hour, uh, 11th hour and 59th minute, I guess, uh, they said there was a deal that was made. And uh, Ontario's Education Minister Stephen Lecce stepped to the microphones yesterday afternoon and said, well, we delivered. The government said we would do everything humanly possible. Our premier made a commitment to do everything humanly possible to keep kids in class. And today I'm proud to confirm that the parties have come together to reach a tentative agreement that will provide stability for children, keep kids in the classroom for two million children. Well, uh, that's the minister's perspective on this. Uh, we're hearing mixed messaging, shall we say, from some of the other parties involved in this. I want to bring Colin DeMello into the conversation. Colin, of course, is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief uh, for Global News. Uh, Colin, uh, interesting, uh, very, very uh, tense weekend, of course. Uh, but I don't necessarily know if we can use labor peace uh, at this stage because there still seems to be a lot of acrimony here. Yeah, I, I guess if this is a tentative contract, then you can call it also tentative labor piece because we don't know whether or not the membership is actually going to vote in favor or reject this deal. Uh, here's what it seems to have all come down to. It came down to not necessarily wages, but additional supports to hire additional members that would eventually go into QP. So QP, at some point last week, last Tuesday, began asking for you know, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of additional employees, uh, things like custodians, uh, librarians, EAs, ECEs, etc. Because they said, you know, these people are instrumental to making sure that classrooms run smoothly. As an example, they wanted an ECE, a guaranteed ECE in every single junior and senior kindergarten uh, classroom along with teachers. Currently, some of them have ECEs to uh, help the teachers, some of them uh, don't. So they were looking for what they called increased supports, and they say that they got none of it from the Ford government. They didn't get any additional commitments for additional hires. And so that's why QP kind of went to its members saying, here's the deal. Laura Walton, the head of QP, saying, uh, you know, I don't really like this deal. I don't think it really does exactly what we need it to do. But why don't you have a say on it and you tell us what you think? But the expectation from just the tone of her comments, Colin, is that this probably is not going to pass. Uh, you'd like to think that when you reach a tentative deal in any kind of labor negotiations, 
uh, that the people around the bargaining table on your side are thinking, okay, this is probably the best we're going to get. And they'll make a recommendation. I don't hear her making that at this stage. Well, here's the thing, right? You got to step back for a second and ask yourself the question, why did QP accept this deal? And, and you know, there are two possibilities here. One, that they felt that the deal was good enough to actually accept on behalf of their 55,000 members. Or two, and this is what I'm hearing was happening, two, it was the internal pressure that may have forced them to accept the deal. So over the last few days, there was a lot more pressure coming in from in, inside the union itself to present the deal to members so that members could actually take a look at what the government offered and decide for themselves whether they thought that it was adequate for themselves or not. And that pressure kind of began to build sometime uh, Thursday, Friday, with you know members writing to their local presidents and, and, and uh, kind of applying a little bit more of that pressure onto the union leadership. And that's what we got the indication from uh, QP yesterday. They said, Listen, you know, our members wanted to see the deal, so we're giving them the deal. Uh, if they feel like it's good enough, great. If they don't, they don't. And one of the things that, you know, QP indicated yesterday, there, there was a, a really key line in one of their uh, news releases. They said, as required, the Central Bargaining Committee will recommend that members accept the tentative deal during the ratification process that will take place until next weekend. Now, they could have easily said, listen, the Central Bargaining Committee is recommending that you accept this tentative agreement. But the fact that they said as required, that means, you know, they have no choice but to say we recommend that you accept this deal. But they're also indicating that it's not exactly what they wanted. So a bit of a mixed message that the union leadership is sending to their members and members are probably looking around to others going, what do we do? Should we accept and, and you know, stay on the job and take these increases in pay or rejected and go on strike during the cold winter months of November. Colin, did you get the impression uh, as you were listening to, to, to the comments yesterday uh, that public pressure might have been a factor? I mean, we, we certainly, as you and I talked about a, a little while ago, uh, that seemed to be a, a, a factor in, in the, the Ford government backing away from the notwithstanding clause because the, the polling that came out, as you remember, uh, suggested that about 75% of the public were supporting the workers and not the government in this situation. Has that shifted at all, do you know? Well, uh, you know, there are there are some polls that had indicated that, you know, had QP gone on strike again, it, it would have shifted and away from their favor towards the government's favor. Uh, but public support, you know, I, I, I think day two or day three into the strike, we would have really started to see some of the tempers boil over from from parents. Uh, but at this point, it was kind of largely, uh, largely kind of dead center, right? Parents weren't sure as to whether or not it was the government uh, that was to blame here or it was QP to blame as, as you know, when the government kind of pulled back Bill 28. Uh, the other big question that the government is going to face here, Bill, is was Bill 28 ultimately necessary? Uh, so when the government imposed that legislation, they imposed a contract onto QP that wasn't nearly as generous as the contract that QP finally accepted. And so the question for the government is, well, if you had it within your means to give QP, um, you know, a three and a half percent increase instead of a one and a half to two and a half percent increase, why didn't you do that from the very beginning and avoid the entire drama that we had associated with the notwithstanding clause and those strikes in the first place. That, that is something that the government is going to have to uh, contend with because ultimately they took the most extraordinary measure to not only impose the contract, but to uh, take away QP's right to even challenge the contract in court. 
And that is a question that, you know, some members will be asking themselves, was all of this even necessary in the government's part? Uh, and amazingly, not the only headache the government has these days. Right now, we heard over the weekend the Ontario Health Coalition is uh, about to, they tell us, issue a, a charter challenge uh, to the, the More Beds, Better Health Care Act uh, that was passed just a little while ago. That's the one that uh, basically allows the institutions to send somebody off to a long-term care facility up to 70 kilometers away or f- further than that, of course, in northern Ontario. So this is another legal challenge that's coming up, and you pile that on uh, to what's going on, of course, with the Greenbelt issues and and the the Housing Act, again, all seem to be tied together here. Uh, The municipalities are up in arms right now because of the freezing of of, uh, development charges. That's money that the municipalities need to pay for uh, all the services that go in there. Uh, it's 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 getting a little tight here right now, and the, you get the figure there's going to be an awful lot of action in the courtrooms these days, more than in Queen's Park. The, the, a lot of pressure on the government right now. A lot of pressure on the government, but this pressure is of their own making, right? That They were the ones who introduced these policies and these measures over the last number of weeks uh, that really have, um, you, you know, caused quite a, quite a lot of eyebrows to be raised. Uh, and in fact, you know, I was talking to somebody with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and, and, and even they are kind of up in arms about the powers that John Tory has received, where he can pass through a bill... A, a, a bylaw, excuse me, with only one third of council support. Uh, But you you have to take stock of where we are in the grand scheme of things. The government is, what, four years out from the next election. Mm -hmm. And for a government that's looking to make big, perhaps unpopular decisions, but that fall very much in line with their party's values, you want to do it in the first year. Because if we look back to the last um, the, the last mandate of this government, they made all of their big, drastic measures, the, the really upsetting ones um, in 2018 and 2019. Of course, the pandemic interrupted a lot of what happened after that. But those are the two years that they really pulled off the Band-Aid and made a lot of big moves. And they got reelected in 2022. And so I think that's kind of what they're banking on here, right? Start off with the unpopular stuff. Start off with the stuff that could get challenged in court and will, you know, erode your support. Because then you've got two or three years left to kind of soften the edges, make investments once again, maybe give people some, some tax breaks or whatnot towards the last year of your mandate and slide right into another election campaign. I don't know if the next one will be as... Uh, as satisfying as this one was for them, but this is this is kind of how a, a government that wants to do un, unpopular, controversial things would get it done. Start off with all of them at the very beginning of the mandate. The only concern, I guess, about that is you're right. I mean, time is on their side certainly because there's not going to be another election until you know this mandate is over. But they don't do very well in court. Does that bother them at all? They don't do well in court, but ultimately, sometimes they go all the way to the Supreme Court, and that's where they end up mm-hmm. winning. Remember, the, the, the challenge over cutting city council in half, that went to the Supreme Court, and they won. Um, you know, The challenge they're having with the CBC, as an example, over revealing their mandate letters from the first year, that is still sitting with the Supreme Court. Uh, they have won some things. They have lost other things as well. The carbon tax challenge is an example. That, too, went to the Supreme Court, and they lost. They feel, you know, comfortable fighting these things in court. Uh, You know, we've been trying to find out what the ultimate bill is that taxpayers have had to pay for all of the times that the Ford government has has had to defend themselves in court. But 
it, it, it seems like it's almost easier to implement these the, the, this piece of legislation and then fight it out for years in court. Because ultimately, as we saw with the city council cut, even if they lost in court, they were able to cut down the size of city council and make their changes. And ultimately, people started to kind of soften up to the idea that yeah, it was going to be 25 city councilors. Um, there will be more court challenges, I can only assume, because... Uh, you know, this government does things that seem to irk a lot of people and they feel like the only recourse is uh, in, in an Ontario court. Well, and, and as you were reporting, I mean, let's let's go back to that last election. I mean, a year before that election, we were still in the throes of the pandemic and lockdowns and mandates. Uh, these guys had the lowest approval rating of any government in recent history and everybody thought they were dead in the water. And look what happened a month or 12 months later. I mean, you, you just don't know. People maybe do have short memories, as long as, you know, the most recent memory is, is hey, look at the stuff he's giving us right now. So uh, they're going to play the time game here, aren't they? Absolutely. And that's what a lot of governments bank on, right? I mean, you know, we, even if you take a look at the former liberal government, they had balanced the budget uh, in uh, 2017 and then decided that they were going to run a huge deficit in 2018. And the reason why was because they were looking to hand out as many goodies as possible. There's a, a line that we like to use at Queen's Park, right? The, you're bribing taxpayers with their own money. And that, that's that's what a lot of governments uh, tend to do. But but that's one of the reasons why they will front load all of their unpopular decisions, because the edge will be taken off over the next couple of years. And this government moves at such a rapid pace that really, you know, by the time you're you're finished getting angry at one thing, there's another thing to get angry at. So you at some point don't even know what to be upset about because there's so many things uh, at, at, at the same time. And the government seems to be kind of you know, comfortable with that level of chaos. The only thing that might change is who gets to the premier. Um, and, and, you know, I've been told by multiple people who, who know the premier well, have spoken to the premier, that he, he does have a very malleable personality, the type of person who, if he hears from enough people on a particular subject, enough opposition, that he might reconsider his, um, his position. And it depends on who he hears from, whether it might be a lobbyist, whether it might be a government relations person, a political advisor, or it might be a member of the public. You might r recall, at first, they, they had really uh, limited the autism funding budget to $300 million. And then he heard from a lot of parents uh, of children with autism. And suddenly, the premier decided he was going to increase that budget by another $300 million. He doubled it from three to six. But in the meantime, there were ministers of the crown who had to go out and defend that $300 million and why they were being, uh, you know, relatively... Uh, cost effective with that money to put it uh, for lack of a better term but then the premier intervenes and increases it and we saw the same thing happen with bill 28 you know the minister of education was the one who introduced that legislation pushed it all the way through and then it was the premier ultimately who made the decision to to walk it back so uh they they are comfortable with doing controversial things until the heat gets to be a bit too much in the premier and that's when he starts to pull back so we'll see over the next few weeks and months what level of controversy the premier is comfortable with in the interim. Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief, of course, for Global News. A very fluid situation there. We'll be watching for your reporting. Thanks, Colin. My pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, which uh, raises the question, are you losing faith in this government? I mean, this is a government that had a huge mandate in the last election, uh, probably more surprising than most people had anticipated. Uh, very, very popular government with the number of seats that they won, and notwithstanding all the controversies. But 
with what's happened now, with what's happening with the Green Bill, with what's happening with a number of other things, with conservation authorities, with what happens with, with a number of the, the issues that are going on now in healthcare, are you losing faith? Have you, do you, have you changed your opinion? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's been a, a, a very, very unusual couple of weeks in the United States, the midterm elections. I think the dust is finally starting to settle. And uh, we're starting to get a, a, an idea of just where the power is going to be now. But actually, who doles out that power and who delegates that may well change, too. Talk about that and lots more. Uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the American capital. Reggie, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Good morning. Let me ask, before we get into the politics of this, or maybe I guess it's, it's tied into the politics, uh, I want to talk about the the. the Justice in, in Sam Alito, the, the concern about it that's going on here right now. Uh, reports over the weekend that Justice Alito may have leaked the Roe decision. There was some concern about that at the time that uh, we got the story. Uh, and also accusations that he did this uh, a, a few years ago on another very, very important case. Now, I know the Chief Justice, John Roberts, says that, look, if we don't have Democrats or Republicans on the court. We have people that are just dedicated to law. Uh, I'm not so sure that's the case with these stories, Reggie. Yeah, I mean, look, this is this is a big deal. Uh, when this was leaked by Politico, um, you know, just before the summer earlier this year, uh, there were kind of grave concerns here. It was the first time uh, in the Supreme Court's history that something of this level had been leaked to the broad public via uh, a news outlet. And of course, you know, the finger pointing started, um, you know, underway. Was this one of the liberal members uh, of the bench uh, who potentially was trying to, you know, spark something here? Was this somebody who was in the, within the staff? Um, but the reporting that's come out over the last couple of days, particularly from the New York Times, suggests that this might not actually have been from, you know, the, the, the left-leaning, quote-unquote, side of the bench, and it could have been from the right. And like you say, Justice Alito, and it is because this reporting suggests in 2014, uh, he may have leaked uh, what's known as the Hobby Lobby case, which um, dealt with whether or not employees can be uh, denied contraception coverage from their employer. Uh, that was leaked, according to this reporting, by Justice Samuel Alito to um, a potential to a wealthy donor. And then it was kind of given to an evangelical leader. So there are concerns here, Bill, that the leaks that are coming out of the Supreme Court are potentially coming from the people who are going to be drafting or ultimately siding with and signing these decisions. And that is leading to the credibility crisis on the court right now. Well, and as you know, as you've been reporting over the last number of times, you've got Clarence Thomas on the other side and his wife, for that matter, uh, which seem to have their fingers in the, in the the insurrection on January 6th in some way, shape or form. That uh, She seemed to, to have some implication with that, too. And she, well, she was essentially bragging about it at the time. Uh, she seems to have quieted down just a little bit. But this is, you know, if the credibility of the court is going to be tarnished in this case, Reggie, what, what's that do to the system? Well, I mean, look, it, it, it further breaks it down and it further erodes the public's ability to have faith uh, in what is supposed to be the ultimate decision maker when it comes to the law of the land. And look, sure, the Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court rather, has been slowly starting to kind of chip away at some things that the justices say shouldn't be in the federal government's hand, uh, that they should be in, you know, state or local government's hands. Uh, and, you know, there, there's no kind of pushback on the fact that the Supreme Court is doing what it ultimately says that needs to be done, you know, depending on who is pushing on that pushback. But the simple fact here that you have the Supreme Court 
you know, potentially under investigation here, at least by the media and with, you know, requests going to the chief justice to get some better clarity here on on exactly what's going on. It does result in those questions of, well, if you say that the bench isn't made up of liberals and conservatives, why do we have, you know, decisions that are coming down that fall along partisan and party lines, especially with justices that are put on the bench by a partisan uh, and, and kind of elected person? Um, you know, it, it, it is raising questions and it is of concern, especially when you say Clarence Thomas, because there have already been rumblings here that we could potentially be seeing the erosion or chipping away at things like same sex marriage at the federal level. There is real concern here. Well, especially because the it seems anyway uh, that this confirms the the fears that a lot of people had is is that maybe it's not political interference, but it's an ideological uh, thing here. And in, in, in Alito's case, of course, as as you know, uh, and have been reporting. Uh, both he and his wife have been strongly tied up with some very uh, small C conservative anti-abortion groups and things of this nature. Uh, same thing with Clarence Thomas too. So they, they, the concern here is they're not going into these deliberations uh, objectively. They're going in there with an agenda of their own. And, and we've seen this happen. I mean, even you know Justice Kavanaugh uh, during his confirmation hearing said there's no way they were going to touch Roe versus Wade. That, that's that's law. We're not going to go there. Well, you know they they simply as soon as they get the appointment. Uh, they they retract these these sorts of things, and it's got to, I think, really, I, I guess, erode the confidence that people have in this system that they're supposed to be, uh, you you know, the objective uh, voice here, the, the the sober voice here. Uh, you expect politics on Capitol Hill and uh, from the White House, but the, the, not from the court, and that seems to be what they're getting now. Yeah, I mean, look, not from the court, and especially for for Canadians listening, uh, you know, sometimes courts are a little bit different in the United States, not so much at the Supreme Court, but there are certain jurisdictions uh, in state and local courts where your judges are elected by the people. So these are highly partisan positions, at least at levels below the Supreme Court, but even on at the highest bench, you know, it, it is not out of the realm of possibility to think that these justices are getting their jobs because of uh, partisan or political leanings, again, based on who nominated them. And it goes right back to someone like Amy Coney Barrett, who was nominated to and ultimately mm -hmm. succeeded in that nomination by former President Donald Trump, uh, you know, has made, um, you know, anti-abortion statements in the past and was criticized by Senator Dianne Feinstein during her nomination by, you know, Feinstein saying, look, the dogma lives loudly within you. And well, Amy Coney Barrett took offense to that. And so too did Republicans. Ultimately, at the end of the day, all those comments of, you know, Roe is law of the land, ultimately it was eroded and taken away by the people who were accused in the past of having a stance um, on kind of Republican or right-leaning uh, issues here. And again, it just kind of broadly speaks to the, the credibility issues when it comes to the Supreme Court, because there is a fear here now that Joe Biden didn't kind of follow that pressure that was coming from uh, left-leaning Democrats to potentially stack the court and put more you know, center left leaning justices on the bench, that Americans' rights could potentially be uh, clawed back even further in the future. That is a concern now. It was a few months ago, and it will likely continue to be that concern uh, with a more kind of Republican voice growing louder, especially with their control in the House now. Yeah. And, and as you've been reporting, I mean, this, you know, they'll, they'll defend their actions simply saying all we're doing is saying this is not a federal responsibility. It's a state responsibility. Well, most of the states, of course, are governed by Republican dominated uh, state senates and, and, and representatives or governors in this situation. So it's it's really handing it off because they end up they know what the result's going to be. So it's uh, it's it's a, a real conundrum. And it's going to be fascinating to watch that story unfold. 
with uh, Roger Cicchini, uh, Global News Washington correspondent. Uh, let's let's talk about the House and the midterm elections. Uh, we know now, of course, that uh, the Democrats have uh, retained the Senate by the thinnest of margins. They've lost the House. Uh, and uh, there have been some fallout from that. Nancy Pelosi, of course, was the, the leader of the Democrats, uh, says she's not going to be, she's not going to resign. She's going to still sit as a representative, uh, but not the leader. And it looks like she may be only one of a number of Democrats that may be stepping aside from leadership roles. Yeah, absolutely. Senior leadership uh, is is kind of, you know, fleeing the coop after the loss of, of the House. You're right. Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, uh, the leader of the Democrats for the last two decades, along with Steny Hoyer, who has been, um, you know, the, the Democratic majority leader in the House uh, while Nancy Pelosi was uh, the speaker and um, uh, Representative Clyburn, who is the majority whip in the House, also stepping down from leadership positions. These are all people who are, uh, you know, in their 70s, if not, I believe, in their 80s, uh, and have been in the party for a long time. They are going to become kind of backbenchers uh, and, you know, uh, kind of, you know, using their abilities to try and move the party forward. But ultimately, this is the opportunity that Democrats have been looking for to change leadership, to bring in, you know, quote-unquote, younger faces into leadership, not kind of going to the, you know, the furthest left and the youngest within the party, but ultimately trying to do this as a way of saying, look, the Democratic Party has shifted over the years. We are stepping down to allow a new generation to come in. There's been some pushback saying, you know, we shouldn't be handpicking these people. It should go to a more kind of broad vote. But at the end of the day, um, this is a this is a momentous period in Washington for people who have had decades of experience and understand how politics works to no longer be in those leadership positions. And, and as you mentioned, there's some speculation here about uh, who may actually fill some of those roles. I know that uh, New York Representative Hakeem Jeffries has been mentioned uh, to probably succeed uh, Pelosi. But the element that I find fascinating about this, and as you say, this is really you know the circle of life in politics, uh, out with the old and, and in with some of the newer, younger thinking ideas. I get that. But the Republicans who retained the House, or regained the House rather, uh, looks like Kevin McCarthy, their leader, uh, is is under a great deal of pressure right now, and he may not be the leader in the by in the, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean that's a real possibility here. The Freedom Caucus, the kind of further right part of of the uh, of the conference, uh, doesn't have confidence in McCarthy. He may not have the votes within the broad Republican conference to be able to get the leadership position, or if he gets it. There's a chance here that it either becomes broken leadership and responsibilities are shipped elsewhere to kind of committee leaders or, uh, you know, it doesn't last long and he's kind of taken out of power by somebody else. A, a thin majority like this with a party that is that is really fractured, um, you know, it spells problems for Republicans, but Democrats could make gains in this bill. Look, uh, if this House uh, kind of numbers at the end of the game here wind up with, you know, the Democrats at 213 or 214, all they would need to do is bring over a couple of more moderate Republicans on their side, and maybe they put forward a name to become the leader. That really has been, you know, kind of a, a little murmur within the Democratic Party that they may be able to instate somebody, someone like maybe Liz Cheney, uh, to, to, to lead the House, uh, because Republicans have are have and are going to have a very difficult time coming together, considering you have this kind of real pro-Trump side of the party and this never-Trumper side of the Republican Party clashing with each other to determine how they're going to go forward with not only control, but legislating and ultimately investigating. Well, and let's talk about that. I know we're just uh, almost out of time here, but I wanted to talk about the, the implications this is going to have. Now, we're told the January 6th investigation, which has been ongoing for a number of months now, 
uh, is winding down, but that's essentially because it's the end of the term. Uh, can we anticipate that that's going to be shut down once uh, the Republicans uh, actually do take over the House and, and start making some, uh, some, some legislative decisions about what's going to happen? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the committee is going to get a report out by December, they say, but this will be shut down by the time the new Congress is sworn in in January. And we heard Republicans last week come out and say that they are already intending to open up investigations into President Biden, attempting to say that they are looking into his and his family's dealings with foreign governments uh, as a kind of a clouded way of saying they want to investigate Hunter Biden, but also ignoring the fact that their former leader in Donald Trump uh, was also accused uh, and, and had allegations allegations of having connections and business ties to uh, to foreign governments as well. But obviously, they're kind of looking at the situation now and pretending that the past doesn't exist. But this is going to be a Republican Party that will ignore everything to do with January 6th. And we've actually heard that there may be investigations of the investigators into January 6th, uh, because there is a segment of of the GOP, namely someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who believes that the, the people who were rioting at the Capitol are the true victims here, and they want to see justice for those victims. So we could see a complete 180 here with the country having tried to get to the bottom of January 6th to the Republican Party saying January 6th didn't matter, but we do need to look at the people who were attacked, uh, who did the attacking because they themselves were attacked. Uh, and, and as you say, the Republicans are the ones going to be driving the bus here, but uh, that's a, a fractured party, too. So we just don't know how much they're going to influence they're going to have on this, uh, which is why we'll be watching for your reporting on Global National, of course. It's a very, very fluid situation down there. Reggie, as always, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Uh, and there's some other things happening there, too. I mean, we, we talk about the midterms and, and we've moved on from that. But that means, you know, the clock is now ticking uh, towards the next general election down in the states. Uh, will Joe Biden run again? Uh, who's the Republican nominee going to be? There's a lot of questions still to be answered. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.